Greetings and welcome to The Pure Report. I'm your host, Rob Ludeman, and it's time to bring the orange with a returning guest, Mr. Sean Rosemarin, our Worldwide VP of Systems Engineering. Sean, welcome back to the program. Thanks, my pleasure, so happy to be here. Great to have you here, great to work through your vacation schedule. I know you were out last week. Uh, anything fun that you and, uh, you and the family were able to get out and do? Yeah, I like how you put two outs in there, hoping I would jump on the opportunity to use my Canadian out. Yes, I'm going to do lots of abouts and outs and, and uh, you know, things around that nature. I'll always sneak those in. Yeah, so I'm based up in uh, resident British Columbia, Canada. Uh, so our vacation has been a staycation, but we did uh, head up to Whistler last weekend and, uh, you know, got some great outdoor time, mountain biking, uh, some time at the lake, some time... Uh, you know, out for some trail runs and obviously experiencing everything the village has to offer, uh, both at the bottom of the mountain and up on top. And I uh, got an opportunity to scare the living daylights out of myself coming within 20 feet of a uh, adult black bear uh, right at the top of one of the mountain biking trails. What was your strategy? Go uh, the other way? Stay still? <laughs> uh, contrary to popular belief, my strategy was not grab a selfie. Um, <laughs> In fact, anybody I've told the story to has asked me if I have pictures and I've said I wasn't particularly worried about grabbing a picture at that point. If anything, I would grab a video so people would know what happened to me. Um, but uh, no, the strategy was, uh, you know, how quickly could I recall in my own uh, storage, uh, aka my brain, how quickly could I recall what to do when coming face to face with a black bear? And uh, so um, anyways, I looked at him, he looked at me, I looked at him, he looked at me. We had a bit of a Mexican standoff. And uh, I decided that um, I wouldn't move till he did. And then he started walking towards me, so I screamed at him. And uh, that didn't work the first few times. And then eventually he just gave me a complete look of disinterest and walked down the mountain. So um, yeah, scary. I mean, you just, you see these things on TV and YouTube and everywhere else, but you just don't realize how big and intimidating they are until they're literally right in front of you and blocking your path. Yeah, I, I love that you mentioned you just kind of had that disinterested look because I always, I, you know, I had a couple encounters up in the mountains in, in, in uh, California uh, with a buddy who used to be a park ranger and, you know, we'd get pots and pans and bang them and the bear would just, you know, sort of stand up and kind of look at you and go, what are you doing? I'm a bear. Like, I, you know, I, you're not going to scare me with pots and pans. You're not going to scare me by screaming at me. I'm a bear. I'm going to pretty much do whatever I want. But uh, Glad you didn't become a Darwin Award winner by uh, doing anything silly. So congrats, congrats on <laughs> on not making the news for that. And and at least you have a nice fun encounter to uh, to to talk to us about. And quick plug: if you want to get to know Sean a little bit more, we did record pod earlier this calendar year. Uh, two episodes, one where uh, we titled it A Curious Journey into IT, where we go into Sean's background, really interesting background about how he navigated into the IT space. And the other is a, a great overview of what Pure does for the modern data experience. We walk through all the tenets of what we do for modern data experience. So definitely a blatant plug to go check those out. In the meantime, we are here at the uh, mid-year point for Pure in the fiscal year. Um, how are you feeling about things? I know there's no time to rest, obviously, but um, I know you're still talking to a lot of your team as well as customers on a regular basis. What are, what are a couple of things that are standing out right now that you, can, uh, that you can share with everybody? Yeah, so I mean, I don't think it'll come to anybody's surprise that 2020 is, uh, will likely be called the year of COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think that for many of us, this is a, a crisis or a change or a 
um, an event like no other that we've encountered in our lives. Uh, I've heard people refer to it as a, a transformation catalyst. I've heard people refer to it as an accelerant. Mm -hmm. um, I think ultimately, though, we've gone past the initial uh, denial. We've gone uh, a little bit through, um, you know, acceptance, accepting that it's here. And uh, I do think now we're starting to turn the corner and saying, okay, well, science is going to do what science is going to do to keep us safe. And we're going to do our part to try to minimize infection uh, around uh, within our circles. Uh, but beyond that, where's the opportunity? Where's the opportunity here for us to seek a little bit better balance? And I think that's where a lot of conversations are is, you know, everybody always likes to think about the or, is it office or home? Is it all office or all home? And we always tend to start at that very um, polarized look and then we eventually get back to an and. And so I think we're seeing the goodness of working from home. We're seeing the challenges of working from home. We're seeing the opportunity that it presents to use the office for what it's best at. And I mean, we could go so many places with this, but even looking at video conferencing, whether it be WebEx or Zoom, I mean, there is a time and a place for video and it has really um, richened our experience, but all video isn't good either. Right. And so I think just talking through our clients um, and our partners and even our employees, I think everybody's trying to find what this new normal is. A uh, bit of an identity crisis in some cases, uh, some people frozen in time trying to figure out which way to go. But defining this new normal, what is it going to look like? What are my expectations? Um, you know, and how are we going to kind of measure our progress? How are we going to feel productive and successful through this is where most of the conversations are, are, are centered around. Yeah, and a little bit of this will get magnified in the, in the coming weeks, right? I mean, my wife, as we record this, is down in her first grade classroom getting prepped for, you know, the, the coming school year, which, you know, in our area, they're going to do a, a remote type of thing with an optimistic, you know, bringing the kids back in. So who knows, but that's going to create, you know, further new challenges for many of us at home, right? Trying to juggle, you know, keeping the kids occupied during the day with their courses and, you know, those, those of us that, you know, have to work full time and, and are fortunate enough, I guess I should say too, with, you know, with that situation, but, but also the teachers, you know, that are out there having to, to juggle and balance. So it'll be interesting come, you know, August, September when, when school gets rolling again, um, you know, how, how are you looking at managing that with, with your own family? Well, I got three children, 10, eight and six, and uh, my wife's an executive at a insurance company. So we're both working from home and we've managed to set up our home offices such that, you know, she gets a piece of that, that closet and I get a piece of this closet. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, adding three children at home uh, is a challenge and it is a massive, massive challenge to productivity. Uh, distractions aside, I think we've all come to learn with the cuteness of having a young child walk in in the middle of a call and, yeah. you know, ask for a snack. Um, but the, the reality is um, it's the thought process that really gets uh, disturbed. So when you're, when you're trying to attend a call or give a piece of advice, it's okay. When you're trying to actually create, form, or germinate ideas in a brainstorming session, disruption is, is, is a major, major, major challenge. And so being able to get kids back to school uh, is, I think, a major step in us being able to get back to focused work, mm -hmm. which we're going to need to do. I mean, crisis work, making a decision here, there, everywhere, okay, I can see it, but we now need to also get back to focus work. And so I'm hoping we can find a way to balance the uh, health concerns with obviously getting our kids back, 
not just for the education experience, but also the social connections. I mean, you know, my oldest son of 10, I think he said it best. He said, I miss school. Right. And he's not a straight A student. Unfortunately, I'd love to share that with you. But, you know, he's a good student. But he just said, I, I miss school. I miss my friends. I miss hanging out with them. I miss, you know, playing ball in the field. And um, I think that we underestimate how much social development and how much, you know, just the way we interact with people is so much attributed to what happens in our school years. And, um, you know, it would be great for us to find a way to keep that development going, even while we, we look to, um, to keep our population safe. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, it certainly expands beyond schools as well. I mean, the, you know, my kid's a big sports kid, and this is the longest he's gone without actually playing some type of competitive game in, in the two or three sports that he really loves. And, and that's, that's a long gap. Um, now, you know, as a baseball player, that's going to be lots of good rest on his on his arm for time to come, which which will be kind of interesting to see the impact of that long term. But it's you know the extra extracurricular activities. It's the the you know the kids that are doing you know theater or arts or music and and, and of course sports. But it's all those things that come into school. And yes, I think everybody wants to get the kids back to school. And it's you know how do we do that where we you know minimize risk to to all the people you know that are that are at the school and, and not just the kids at hand. Um, I think one of the other things that would be interesting for us to chat about is, is some of the other impacts. You wrote a blog really recently that, that, that I found um, interesting and thought provoking and certainly ideas and concepts around, you know, what, what kind of impact COVID has had. And, you know, we can talk about it as in terms of the acceleration of automation, but also, you know, predictions about, you know, industries and places and, and companies that, that we all, you know, engage with and work with on, on a regular basis, you know, gyms and restaurants and hotels. And um, we just talked about work from home. And, and of course, you know, airline travel, right? You're, you know, what that's one thing in, in account management sales, right, with your team, there's a lot of time spent, you know, either in airplanes or in hotels or, or in cars. And, uh, things are things are changing, and I'd love to walk through some of the some of the things that that you brought out in that blog there, um, and and kind of relate it back to what what may change going forward relative to to data management and, and a technology spin. But what about gyms, um, personal training? I know you're you're now, or I don't know, was that a recent thing that you're a Peloton guy? But um, you know, early on in March, we needed something and I, you know, I, I'm not a biker, I don't like biking per se so much, but rowing seemed interesting and jumped into the hydro, which is kind of the rowing version of the Peloton. And that's been great. The whole family's using it. It's something that uh, sits there in the room and we use it. But, um, what of the brick and mortar establishments I think that are, that are going to suffer. I think people will still love going to a gym. There's part of the camaraderie there, but how does that change in your view? Well, so look, I mean, personal training is a very personal thing. Uh, I know some folks who love to train alone and they run and they go run ultra marathons by themselves. They'll go do a self-guided hundred mile marathon. Uh, other folks are only into team sports. They play hockey or they play baseball or soccer four or five, six times a week. Um, so it's a very personal thing. And so once again, it's not a polarized or it's an end. Mm -hmm. But the home fitness market was always sort of plagued with this. If you didn't have a lot of space and you didn't have great light, uh, it was hard to build a gym. It was also very expensive. But beyond that, it was that motivation. How do I get myself to go into my basement and walk myself through a program? Part of being in a gym is seeing other people work out. 
you see some folks, maybe you have a few conversations, but it's more like, hey, that person looks like they're having fun. That person looks like they're working hard. I'm going to work a little bit harder. I'm yeah. going to get into the mood of actually getting myself fit. And so, you know, along comes these Hydra, Peloton, uh, and others. Um, and, you know, they bring this concept of, no, there's a whole team with you. There's a whole bunch of people that are waiting for you in this ride. And actually within Pure Storage, we have a Wednesday morning ride we do that we call the Pure de France. And uh, <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's totally voluntary. And yeah. we just go in and we actually get on the bike at 6.30 my time every Wednesday and everybody curates a different ride. And, you know, you don't see them. That's the weird part. There's no right. video. It's right. not like you're on a Zoom call but you're racing each other. You can see where each other are, you can give each other a high five. There's very low kind of communication because you are biking, but it's that sense of camaraderie. And then the content is changing. So you don't really get bored because it's different instructors, different teachers, different classes. Um, for me, it's a great option. I happen to live in a city where it rains four months a year pretty consistently. And so getting outside is not an option. And there's also times, as you know, in your working uh, life where you only have 45 minutes between calls and you want to get a workout in and I can't drive to my gym get a workout in and drive back in 45 minutes so it's become another tool in the arsenal to be able to work out effectively and I think through this crisis hey it's a matter of comfort but um, I do think that gyms should pivot away from the concept of we have access to equipment and it's really inexpensive because that's kind of where the traditional gym is fit to, hey, like what can you give me that I can't get at home? So personal training is gonna be crucial. Yeah. Can we start to merge things like wearables with personal training? Can we start to look at things like, you know, can we actually run classes that work on some of these devices, but classes with instructors that maybe are in our local clubs that we know that we built a relationship with? You know, having a Peloton instructor from New York's great, but my chances of working out there aren't very great. What if they took the best instructors in Vancouver that I was actually working with and I could take their classes because I could build their community and do some of them in person and some of them um, from afar. And, you know, you start to look at the connections there um, and then you start to look at more of a regimen. Yeah, you're going to bike, but you're going to swim, you're going to run, you're going to weight train, depending on your age category. Um, I think this is a real opportunity for personal uh, trainers to create a brand that says you have more options than ever, but with options come choices and kind of customizing that program, meal plans, training plans, uh, et cetera. Um, they got a wealth of riches to build from. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think it's you really hit the nail on the head with the inclusive nature, right? I mean, if people are experiencing the the benefits of the virtual community at home, right, in in a in a ride or in a row, you can absolutely bring that same kind of experience, whether it's using the same equipment or just creating that community, so that there's going to be a split. Because, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, there's times when I'm doing the row where I kind of like, well, I'd rather be outside doing something, and I, you know, I certainly like going for my walks in the afternoon and. I think you do that as well, where you just line up some phone calls and, you know, roll some calls and go for a nice walk around the neighborhood and there's a trail near my house. But I think there's going to be a, a notion to do a blend, right? Well, I'm going to do my rows at home, but also, geez, it really would be fun to kind of go to a place and see a live trainer um, in person. So that'll be, that'll be an interesting one to watch, but cool to know that there's a, a nice group of Puritans doing a, a joint, a, a team within a team on a Wednesday morning ride. Very cool. Um, and, it's, uh, and it's good to hear you talk about old school phone calls. You know, yes. I, do, 
I think we pivoted in a major way to video conferencing. Too much, perhaps. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I gotta be honest, it's not natural to sit at a desk for 11 hours and go call to call and only get up for bio breaks or snack breaks. I mean, you need to walk around. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, webcams have not developed to the point where they're kind of sitting on my, you know, as almost like a, uh, a selfie stick attached to my forehead. Like, I can't walk around, I can't move, I can't get uh, air, I can't get a change in scenery. And so, you know, let's use the tools where they add value, but let's not over rotate to the point where we end our day so exhausted because we feel like we've been in a fishbowl the entire day. Yeah, the word I use is compression, right? So, I mean, I, I find that the, the amount of these remote and these virtual calls, you know, where you're staring at a screen, they just, it gets compressed, right? It's just one after another. And so probably the biggest joy I have, you know, from a work standpoint daily is, is just talking to members of my team, right? Just strolling out on the trail and, you know, I have to tell them because I have everything set up as a, as a, you know, a video conference. I go, all right, don't, don't log in. I'm just going to call you on the phone. Like we'll do a walking meeting. You go walking, I'll go walking. I wish we were walking together, but let's at least, let's at least both get a change in scenery. And you know, it's remarkable when you can add that variety into your day. Cause that's what we had before, right? You'd go for a coffee meeting and then right. you'd have a meeting downtown and then you'd walk through to public transport and you'd go to another uh, place or you'd go to the airport and you'd board the plane. And then, you know, you had these different venues that added different energy and you know, if there's one thing we really lost in all this, it was that we, we kind of turned our home offices into a bit of a, of a cage in some mm -hmm. perspectives. I mean, yeah. people used to say, I'm going to go get some yard time. I mean, you know, it doesn't get more, more analogous to, to a cage than yard time where you're going to let yourself go walk outside for 20 minutes. I mean, you have permission to ignite your energy in whatever it takes. And uh, I think that's what we're all now finding is, hey, video doesn't always work for me. Sometimes a phone call works. Uh, by the way, sometimes, you know, I'm going to take a break in the middle of the day. I'm going to get my workout done there. Wouldn't have done that in the old world. No. Now I have that flexibility. Mm -hmm. And that hopefully is where we end up is not so much work-life balance, but integrating work and life in a way that actually works for you. Yeah, it's a, it's, <clears throat> it's a good message um, around that work from home. And it's, it's interesting, you, you, you come to the realization about what you can get done and how much you get done in a traditional office, right? And I was never a full 100% go in the office. I was at a couple of days at home just to, to, you know, do the productive thinking working, right? As you were referring to it earlier, but I had a call with one of our, our alliance marketing people a couple of weeks ago, and I never have calls with her. And she said, it's so nice to talk to you. We've never really done a call. And I said, yeah, why is that? And she said, well, that's because I always bump into you in the break room. And we spend five or 10 minutes going over current issues and what we need to get done. And then we're done. And then we move on. Um, so that, that was an interesting realization. And um, I think we're all discovering it's, it's really about balance and, you know, finding, uh, finding what we need uh, in order to just get through the day. And, and like you said, 11 or 12 hours straight sitting in front of screen staring at folks. Tough to do. Tough to do. Yeah, it's, you know, you brought up something there I really want to click on. So that, unfortunately, is another uh, area that we've been challenged with is those hallway conversations where, hey, Rob, if you have a minute, mm -hmm. people now, in many cases, that kind of, um, I'm going to call it iterative type conversation, it's been lost because people don't want to book a time on your calendar to cover off a quick topic. 
but they would have mentioned it to you in the hallway. And sometimes those little sparks, those little starburst conversations in the hallway emerged into something much, much bigger um, or evolved into something much, much bigger. So, you know, we have to find a way. And I loved how you said, I just call my people to connect on how they're doing. Because you know what, right now, how you doing is actually no longer a, I'm fine, let's get to business. No, no, it's legit, right? It matters. Like, how, how am I doing? Let's talk about how I'm doing, right? Because we, uh, otherwise we might as well just be bots that are just communicating with each other factually. And empathy right now, you don't know if someone's going through a health crisis themselves, their parents, um, maybe they're challenged with three kids at home who aren't in school. That would be my particular challenge. Right. Right. Uh, maybe there's other things going on. Maybe the hurricane or tornado that just came through town has actually affected them. Because you're not seeing each other face to face, without that personal touch point, you may be diving into a work conversation where someone just isn't in a position to be able to process that. And we just need to be extra cognizant of that empathy function right now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely agree. And so I, you know, I guess the theme of that is just, you know, reach out, right? Reach out to folks and make a connection and ask them how they're doing, but really listen <laughs> and really, you know, find out um, how, how they are doing. Um, so I, I want to shift to another one that's interesting because here, you know, in the Bay Area, we see a number of the sort of smaller communities or the smaller little towns that have a big restaurant culture um, actually closing down streets. So I, I drove to the Mountain View office uh, a couple weeks ago to pick something up uh, that was in a storage closet. And I hadn't been there in a while. And Castro is the main street that runs through downtown Mountain View where most of the peer offices are. And there's three, two, three block chunks of Castro Street shut down with, you know, tables and chairs in the middle of the street, which I'm like, that's great right? Let's, let's help give those restaurants opportunity. The, the little town of Los Gatos that I live near is, has done a similar thing, although not shutting everything down. But there's also some interesting things that I'm noticing with, with what they're doing to manage low touch, right? You go to some of these places and there's a, there's a QR code on the table and you scan it with your phone yeah. and it pulls up the menu and you order. And the only people you really engage with are the people that bring the food to you. And then you pay your bill at the end through the phone and you don't get a bill or sign or do anything with a card. It's, it is interesting, but this is also going back to, to what we mentioned up top about this is kind of one of those accelerants of, of automation, right? These are, these are things that probably have been looked at or technologies that restaurants have been considering adopting. I mean, you know, the, the fast food places have had touchscreen menus in for a couple of years, but still have people behind the counter. Now we're seeing that accelerate. Do you see any of that with your vacation last, last week or, or, you know, in the community where you live? What's that look like? Oh, yeah. So touchless is definitely, uh, touchless is definitely a theme, as is sanitizer. I mm -hmm. mean, uh, I'm not sure what the hand sanitizer spot price is at the moment. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's ultimately, you know, getting used to some new habits. I think we had our temperature taken 10 or 15 times every day. So every mm -hmm. store you open. Um, contact tracing, yep. so getting leaving your contact number in every place you go. Uh, the restaurant one, though, in addition, is, is very interesting because, I mean, look, from my point of view, whenever I enter a restaurant that I don't know, the first thing I always like to ask the server is, what's good here? Yeah. Because, you know, a server is almost always is going to tell you what's legitimately good because, well, frankly, their livelihood depends on it. If right. you're happy and you're satisfied, you're probably going to tip better, and tips are a large percentage of the, of the um, income. For the, for the servers. But by removing that and replacing it with a QR code, 
I actually struggle with what's good, mm -hmm. especially if it's a large menu. Um, although many restaurants have reverted to a much smaller menu during this time just to try to control costs. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's no real way to figure out what's good. So I was just thinking last week, I mean, wouldn't it be cool if you could almost crowdsource what's good? So actually get the patrons to be able to have an interactive relationship with the menu, send feedback, send comments, just like you would on a recipe website, but also be able to give the dish a certain number of stars. Now you can moderate it so that the people who want to be trolls, they kind of get discarded. But right. let me figure out maybe give a description from a diner of how they felt it was, or was it, you know, too spicy? Was it too large? Was the small portion big enough? Um, these are all questions I would generally ask a server. The other thing I would say is, while they have done touchless at the front end of the deal, I didn't find any restaurants who wanted to actually end the transaction touchless. Mm -hmm. Like, I'd love to just pay my bill when I'm ready to go. I shouldn't have to wait to hail down a server and bring, have them bring over a bill and then wait for the machine. And by the way, I don't really even want to touch the machine. No, no. Um, and swipe is good for that. But, you know, in a lot of cases, that is a no-brainer. We have to get to touchless exit. Um, and so when you think about it, now you can reserve online. You can order through QR. I think there's some opportunities for improvement. I think the kitchens have gotten more efficient. Uh, the food's actually fresher because there's less on the menu, which is always goodness. And, um, you know, some places have embraced uh, the takeaway. And you talked to that. Yep. I mean, we even saw some major mer mergers, right? And Uber Eats and Just Eat and a whole bunch of companies coming together. That whole market has expanded. Uh, I don't believe anybody's profitable yet from uh, in the business, but there is a lot of movement. But what I haven't seen yet is restaurants reinventing themselves to actually be a new experience. So if I'm thinking about a restaurant now where I have three to four times the amount of space I had before. Now it's harder to get a table, but when you get a table, you really feel special because there's nobody around you. You know those little old tables for two that you used to always walk in, you'd be on a date and you'd be like, oh, that's an awkward table. Yeah. I'm gonna spend some time with my significant other and I've got people to my left, to my right. You don't have that anymore. But what else could restaurants do to actually take that experience, which is now going to be expensive because it's the only way they can survive, and either through the quality of the food, the quality of the atmosphere, the quality of the service, or whatever else they add to that experience, to really say, wow, the concept of going out to eat is actually a different thing now. Mm -hmm. I got fast food, know what that is. I've got really good takeaway or delivery that I can get to my house. But now I have a new category of eat out restaurant that is an experience that I don't do very often, but really presents a new proposition. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and one area I'm curious about is, you know, as, as more of these automated things come into, come into fashion and stay, will the traditional, you know, server model become more nostalgic, right? You know, you go back to the 50s with the car hops and the, you know, the people are right. roller skates, break. like those exist still in places, but they're there for nostalgia. Will we, and I don't have an answer to this, will we get to a point where so much, you know, is automated? I, I did, uh, you know, the, the end of meal experience, we did go to a brew pub in San Diego a few weeks ago. And it was just, you know, tip was included, pressed a button on the phone, and we got up and left when we wanted. We did not have to wait for that, you know, that device to put my card in that I didn't want to touch like you didn't want to touch. And, and so, 
you know, these things may uh, may come in more into fashion, but will nostalgia rule for, you know, sort of the, the traditional way and, and of course the livelihood, right, for, for a lot of these servers. Um, I love how you put that, you know, nostalgic. Like think about driving a car. I mean, 25 years from now, we'll still drive, but we'll drive for nostalgia. We'll yeah. kind of go out for a drive. It'll be something we do on specific roads rather than we drive to commute. Um, and so I do think there is a nostalgic element to that. And maybe, you know, looking back at what I said about the experience, maybe that like true trained uh, masters of their craft servers, um, you know, become kind of like, you know, the old school maitre d's and the old school, like, let me walk you through the menu. Let me explain to you how the chef has put together the menu and how we're going to navigate through this tasting uh, tonight. I mean, that is such a skill. And that's an experience you just couldn't deliver for yourself just by picking up some food at the curb and driving it home. No, no. Or a sommelier, right? Think about the, yeah. the person at the higher end restaurants recommending the wine. I mean, back to your point about what is good. And furthermore, what wine do I want to have with the food I'm getting? Can you make a recommendation? It's not something you can do without guidance unless you want to go, you know, become a sommelier. So um, another one my family experienced recently, we haven't quite done airlines, but we did in, in our trip to San Diego, we stayed in a hotel for, for a few days and an Airbnb, right? Or, or you know, home rental. Uh, another interesting experience, right? Because they certainly, you know, all, all the lodging places are incentivized to make sure that people feel comfortable, right? There's the stickers on the on the hotel doors that's like sanitized and, you know, you open the door and it breaks open the sticker and you know that nobody's been in there, right, since that time. So that was, that was comforting, but at the same time, they're high-trafficked areas. And back to your point about hand sanitizer, you know, we have little bottles of sanitizer we keep in our, in our pockets and carry them around and we sanitized, you know, wherever we went. We went to the San Diego Zoo. I was like, think about all the rails and things you touch at a zoo while you're looking at animals. But, you know, squirt, squirt, you know, wipe, wipe, and, and away we went. Um, have, you, have you done hotels recently and, and thoughts on that and kind of the lodging market in general? Yeah, so look, hotels have a lot of logistical challenges because they are, uh, there's a lot of pinch points in a hotel. Hallways, elevators, the lobby, uh, even the entranceways in some cases. And, you know, the other interesting part of it is um, the only way to manage a lower, uh, all the space requirements for social distancing is to have people be a little bit more um, thoughtful in how they're going to spend their day. It's weird to go on vacation and say, I have to book the gym, book the pool, yeah. um, book my restaurants. And by the way, if I change my mind, I have zero flexibility because everything else is full. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of like if you've ever gone on a cruise, everything's kind of a lot more booked. It's a lot, you have to book your dinner slot and book your table. Similar, right. Mm -hmm. When you go on a family vacation, typically you're not that structured in how you're exactly when you're going to go to the pool and how long you're going to stay and when you're going to eat and what you're going to eat. Um, but I, I mean, literally there were times in hotels where we've called for pickup and the hotels just said like, look, we, we just don't have the restaurant staff to deal with more than this number of people at any given point in time because we staff to the uh, patrons that are going to be in the dining room. And so I think there are challenges to work through uh, in the hotel game itself. Um, but I have seen it work extraordinarily well. I mean, one of the small things that I think would be good for everyone is when we went on vacation last week, the hotel chain we stayed at said, look, we're not doing uh, housekeeping because of COVID. We don't want to send people into your room during your stay because we feel that uh, it's just not in your best interest. 
And initially we thought, wow, we're here for a week. Like, I don't know, like I'm used to housekeeping. I like the fact that I leave in the morning after my kids have more or less destroyed the room. And I come back at the end of the day and it's magically back to where it was. But you know, we kind of said, hey, at home we don't have housekeeping and we make it work. And this is a much smaller area. And you know, we got through the entire week and it was no big deal. The reason I bring it up is you think of the carbon impact of all that housekeeping. Does the carpet really need to be vacuumed every day? Do you vacuum your own carpet every day? Um, you know, does everything need to be cleaned to that level every single day? So one of the takeaways I'll be driving ahead with is I'll be refusing housekeeping when I stay moving forward. Yeah. I mean, I don't need it, especially when I'm traveling on a business trip. I literally do nothing in that room other than sleep. I can fold the corner of the bed down in the morning and they can clean it between uh, guests. Yeah. And so that was a huge realization. Um, the other thing I would suggest to folks is stay on low floors. Yeah. Take the elevator completely out of play and just take the stairs. Yep. Not only is it healthier for you, but it's way more efficient and way easier. And then just start to think about, you know, I know that Airbnb and VRBO and a lot of those, those kind of home shares have been under a little bit of, of pressure because of the business, but I do think they'll make out okay because the concept of having your own common space is going to be very, very attractive. Yeah. The only difference is gonna be because more people will be subscribing to those services, you'll actually have a better ability as a host to create a brand. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if Rob Ludeman's uh, home shares always deliver a certain level of experience for me, then hey, I might wanna book at all of Rob's properties. And so this concept of anybody can be a hotel, um, a hotel operator or a, you know, a boutique uh, retreat operator. I think that business will open up and people will value things like, wow, it's really clean. Wow. It's really well set out. The amenities are fantastic. Uh, Cause that may become a more comfortable uh, option for folks than sort of the, the typical apartment like hotels. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, you know, it's, it's brand, but then also you're we're kind of migrating into loyalty, which leads to the next topic, which is around airline travel. Right. And uh, you know, I have a friend who is, pretty high up at one of the one of the major airlines in the US and he's in finance. So <laughs> needless to say, it's been a, a difficult time to determine what, you know, what he needs to do with the fleet and, you know, working on bridge yeah. loans and things of that nature. I mean, I'm not going to name the company, but um, that's one where, you know, I, I don't know how long that'll come back. But if, if you're an airline and you create a comfortable experience that people feel safe with, you've got the opportunity to not just maintain the loyalty because we typically are loyal to one airline or one or two because of the programs they have, but to really extend that loyalty over a longer period of time. And the numbers are coming back a little bit. I mean, the loads are nowhere near where they were a year ago at this time, but um, they're starting to pick up and people are starting to feel a little bit more comfortable. And frankly, people need to go places, right? That are, that are far away. Yeah. And that's just it. Like you just hit on it. Right. The one thing the airlines have that no one can take away is there's no other way for me to get to Australia. Yeah. I mean, I could probably take a boat and a month from now I might end up in Australia, but that's just not reasonable, uh, nor is it really viable from a whole bunch of reasons. We as a global population love, most of us anyways, love to travel and seek out new places. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, if we go back to the 1600s and the 1500s, I mean, this gene is what put people on boats to go and explore and discover far-fetched places. 
um, which never would have happened had people not had the courage to put themselves on boats and spend, oh, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight weeks at sea uh, just to miraculously find something that wasn't there. We all have that, that kind of, you know, um, that real will to discover. And so I think people uh, will, um, many will be pioneers and will continue to fly in order to satisfy that yearning that they have. I mean, heck, getting back to our school discussion, a lot of students are going to take a gap year. They don't oh, want to yeah. do freshman year in COVID. And frankly, I don't blame them. And I think if you have the flexibility, a gap year is a great idea. May as well. Yeah. But what are they going to do in their gap year? Most of them don't want to work through their gap year. Most of them want to travel. And so yeah, usually you know, what you do in a gap year. Yeah. So the onus now on the airlines is to really convince people that they are taking no more risk by stepping in an airplane. And it's early, but you know, early science seems to show that based on the, um, I believe the air in a, in a jet gets uh, recycled or re, I should say cleaned something like five to eight times every 10 minutes, the air is completely new within the aircraft. You think it's claustrophobic and you think that everything is kind of right on top of you. Um, but there's a lot of, I think, marketing that has to happen for airlines to get the science clear behind what is your real risk sitting in an airline seat. In economy, with the middle seat full, because let's be honest, keeping the middle seat empty is just not economically viable for the airlines. No. And you know, what is it in business class? Does it even matter? Are you taking your risk lower? Then fixing it so that the entire process is touchless. You know, I love touchless check-in, touchless baggage check, um, even the concept of if it could ding you when you should board and if you could get that to work rather than queue up, it's a way more efficient process. But, you know, we haven't proven ourselves to be willing to kind of be, um, I would say, organized that way. We like to queue, but queues are really bad. Mm -hmm. So if we could somehow build it so that the whole process of boarding the aircraft and deboarding the aircraft uh, is as touchless as possible. And once again, right, just get to the point where stepping on an airplane is no more risk than doing the things you already do every day. Um, I think we can manage through to the point where we have a vaccine, uh, antibodies, et cetera. But that is definitely a challenge. Um, but I, I do think the airlines will see uh, a percentage of the population willing to either put up with it because they have to for their job or put up with it because frankly, the will to live per se mm -hmm. is stronger than, um, uh, than the risk. Yeah. And again, that's another, you know, the, the, I like what you said about getting the, the, the ding or the ping to, to board, you know, outside of the situation we're in now, I, for all the travel I've done for the hundred thousand a year, for however many years I've been doing, I love that regardless of the situation we're in, you know, just stay, I can go get some lunch, hang out and it's like, Oh, now it's time to board. Great. We don't have to, you know, stand in zone one, zone two, zone three, zone four, zone five, all that mess, you know, with people kind of glomming around just, okay, now it's your turn to get on and might actually make the boarding process. Uh, I love the boarding process. There's a good George Carlin bit about that. Um, you know, using words that make things sound more important than they actually are. We're just getting on a plane, the boarding process. Um, but <laughs> um, I will yeah. tell you though that, that one of the, the beautiful things of, of this staycation concept we all have of traveling pretty close is everything's by car. And you know, like our vacation last week, I mean, it was so much of a relief and so little stress to say, we're going to pack up our suitcases. Yeah. I'm going to put them in the car. I'm going to drive an hour and 15 minutes and I'm going to be home. 
And if I am delayed along the way, then I'm delayed. And if the kids have to stop for something, then they have to stop. But when you have all of these, I got to catch a train to get to a plane, to get to a connection, to catch a taxi, to get home. It's a lot of anxiety, especially as you're trying to travel as a family of five versus, hey, you know what? We're good. Like it's maybe we're not going as far as we'd like to, or maybe to all the dream places we had on our list. Um, but I would encourage those to discover the places near you that you just mm -hmm. may not have taken a vacation to because um, just remember there are people in other places who would consider those a vacation That's and right. you have the honor and the privilege to be close enough to go and, and experience them at a time when they're not busy. Yeah. Well, after, you know, two or three months of traveling no more than five or 10 miles from home, just getting on the road and getting on, you know, interstate five to head to San Diego even though there's nothing out there, was entirely liberating. And it took me back a little. You know, there is this whole road trip mentality that that we've had in, in North America. And, you know, my, my family used to spend part of summers in Colorado. We didn't fly. You know, we loaded up the car in, in San Jose and, and spent two days plus on the road driving all the way to Colorado because it's just, you know, it's hard to go 24 hours in a straight shot. And that took me back a little, you know, when we were driving to San Diego uh, a couple weeks ago, just, hey, we're in the car, we're in it together. Uh, it wasn't boring. It wasn't tedious, like sometimes those longer drives are. And uh, it was super liberating. Well, um, yeah, the challenge, of course, though, bringing that up is, you know, back to your airplane to kind of circle this through. The last piece is obviously that as, as a society, our families have grown global. Yeah. So my parents are all the way across the country. And I have no way to effectively see them without getting on an airplane or driving across the country. And uh, I don't know about the drive across the US, but the drive across Canada uh, takes roughly four and a half days um, if I do it myself because I have to stop. And uh, much of it is flat, very, very, very flat and very hot in the summer. Uh, so, you know, those, that's yet another challenge of how do you kind of keep the family uh, together because uh, you can't isolate forever as one unit. And uh, we all kind of have dispersed, some to Europe, some to Asia, some to uh, other parts of North America. And so we're going to have to figure that piece out too, how we kind of manage our family relationships, um, especially if you've got older kids or older parents. Because uh, getting on a plane and flying across to see my parents, uh, who are over 70, doesn't seem like the safest thing for me to do. Yeah. 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 And I mean, our family's skipping Colorado this year for that reason with my parents who are about 80, you know, same, same type of thing. It's unfortunate. Well, um, bring it home for us. I think that, you know, I, I hope folks have enjoyed kind of just hearing, you know, us kind of, you know, chat a little bit about these, these, you know, thought provoking um, areas, but really a lot of what's behind this is, is, you know, the need for, you know, enterprises and companies in these areas to, to perhaps invest in, in new technologies, right? And there's going to be data at the heart of that. And I think, you know, we're trying to do it pure here is to say, how can we help you? You know, what can we work with you on to, you know, help you meet those challenges and, uh, you know, what do you call it, accelerating automation or whether we're talking digital transformation, which it certainly is, that's pretty much in our DNA and what we've been trying to do even before we've gotten into this situation. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's funny because when you look at the companies that have really led in the, uh, in the stock market run over the last few months, the common thread is it's not just tech companies because it's not all tech companies. Yeah. It's tech companies who have found a way to not just serve their client base remotely, 
right? Call it, you know, Shopify powering the next generation of, of retail um, type companies. But it's those that have found a way to harness data. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we talked about today, you know, if you think about, I mean, we started in schools. Well, you know, heck, schools really need to think of how they deliver curriculum, how they manage students. You know, maybe we can actually find a way to leverage the best of something like Khan Academy to actually customize courseware and customize curriculum for students. And that's going to all come on the back of data, potentially even reading things like how is your eye moving through the webcam? How are you digesting the content? Can I see from your body language whether or not you appear to be interested or disinterested? Uh, how do professors start to use technology to manage hand raising and questions right. and interaction and office hours? All things that from the time you and I were in school, like dinosaurs, hasn't really evolved. And then we moved across to hotels. I mean, you think about contact tracing. You think about making it completely effortless for me to structure my guests stay without making them feel as though it's too structured. Using things like video surveillance to actually see who's in a space at a given time so that I can make sure that I'm you know, doing what I need to do. And obviously looking at all the analytics associated with cleaning, hygiene, looking at what's been, um, what's been kept up to date, and then all of the touchless interactions. By the way, touchless is not just convenient for us as consumers, but every one of those touchless transactions is a data point. Right. A data point for me to use to better serve my client base, eliminate risk, et cetera. So it's all gonna come down to how well not just can we solve these particular obstacles, but how well can we capture, um, I would say, you know, activate and use the data that we've come across to actually change the experience. Um, look, you know, every time we look back at anything, any of these major events that have happened through our lifetime, um, there have always been booms that have happened after. There have been companies that have emerged from nowhere. Whether we look at the Industrial Revolution, we look at the World Wars, we look at uh, you know, what happened in, in, the, in the 50s with the baby boom that happened right after that. You know, we look at the financial meltdowns in the 80s. Every crisis has a boom and a bubble. And there are many organizations that have an opportunity to leapfrog, right? I think it was Satya Nadella said, we're going through 10 years of change in six months. Right. Yep. So if you were waiting for 10 years for your next big idea to come to the forefront, well, that time is now. And so get on it. And we'll be here to help. Well, thanks, Sean, for uh, coming on. Really fun, fun conversation with you. And uh, if you want to check out that blog that uh, we base this around, that's on Sean Rosemarin. Dot com And Sean's also worth a follow on Twitter, right? If you want to get his thoughts, not just around technology and what Pierre's doing, but just in general, a lot of really good thought-provoking stuff. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? I don't have it off the top of my At head. Sean Rosemary. And uh, yeah, I mean, I blog, I try to blog once a month, uh, usually not on uh, specific speeds and feeds of technology. I'll do that on the Pure Storage blog, but more around um, transformation, acceleration, of technology, so what's going on and what can we expect next? So thank you for having me here, Rob, and uh, I, I hope I can get to a guest spot three because that would put me in the ranks of uh, Andrew Miller and uh, Kevin Rickson and a couple others. You would be up there, yep. We'll have to get another one on the books and appreciate the time today. That was a ton of fun for me and, uh, and hopefully it was for you as well. Um, with that, we will go ahead and wrap. Thank you, everybody, for listening and continuing to come back to The Pure Report. We'll keep bringing on excellent guests like Sean Rosemarin. And with that, 
Uh, we will wrap for Pure Storage and Sean Rosemary. And this is Rob Ludeman saying, don't look back. Something might be gaining on you.